0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined today as usual by staff writer Joshua M. Clark.
1: Hi, hi.
0: Hi. I had to use your formal byline because you have on this jaunty little reporter's hat and... There's a typewriter in your lap, and you're just like a throwback to the days of yore when when politics were good and pure and dirty, but not as dirty.
1: I've gone all Walter Winchell, in other words. I'm getting very excited. I'm not going to be at any of the presidential debates, but believe me, I'm going to be watching them, Especially, especially the vice presidential debate. I'm really looking forward to that one. Oh, yeah? I'm very interested to see what happens. Because, you know, earlier this year in the uh, in the presidential primaries, they held a debate and uh, Mr. Charlie Gibson and George Stephanopoulos hosted. And they were widely criticized for spending like the first hour and a half uh, asking just stupid pop culture questions of the candidates. So um, I'm kind of hoping that the actual presidential debates are a little more refined. The questions are a little more insightful. Meaty. A little meatier, sure, you know. I'm kind of hoping that uh, Mr. Jeremy Piven hosts, or at the very least does the Ryan Seacrest thing of like, aw snap, or that kind of thing, like in and out of commercials. I know you're a big Jeremy Piven fan. I'm a
0: huge Jeremy Piven fan. Yeah. For me, no one but the PIV will do. Yeah. Well, and my fiancé,
1: but... As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Piven, if you're listening, Candice has expressed several times that she would love to receive an email from you, so... Uh, I would strongly recommend you do that. It would make her day.
0: But for all of you listening who are curious about presidential debates, we'll move from Piven to Palin and other things more uh, uh, germane to that particular topic.
1: I've I've actually got a a little legend I want to confirm with you. Okay. So I had heard, and I think this is kind of a condensed version of it, but basically I heard that Richard Nixon lost, the 1960 presidential election because of a knee injury, and it had something to do with the debates. Is that is that fact or fiction?
0: That's fact. How? Well, it's sort of a, a long breadcrumb trail of a story, but I think that most of you guys know about the very famous televised debates between Nixon and Kennedy. Essentially, Nixon went on TV looking like death warmed over. He looked underweight and sallow and he wore the same color suit as the backdrop and it was nothing was working for him. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then there's JFK who looks amazing. As always. As always, tan, fit, smiling, charming, the huge. But Nixon went on to lose the presidential debate by all accounts of people watching it on TV. But people who were listening on the radio to the debate Thought that he was the winner
1: what did the knee have to do with this though the
0: knee he had banged his knee into a car door a little mm-hmm. while before and he'd gotten a staph infection as a result
1: uh, that's why he felt hence, like death warmed over yeah him.
0: hence the the underweight uh, underweight body and the sallow skin mm-hmm. and just nothing going right for him.
1: And this was, like, one of the first televised debates, right?
0: The first between two party-nominated candidates. So you have the Democrat candidate and the Republican candidate, and it was on TV, 1960, September 26, History in the Making. Yeah,
1: they call it the Great Debates now. There were three of them, I believe, something like that. So, um, you know, presidential debates, as far as I know, um, actually were born out of a senatorial debate. They're not that old. Uh, It was, uh, I think, Abraham Lincoln who was debating a guy named Stephen Douglas for the senatorial seat in Illinois, right? Yeah,
0: and the best part of that is that he wasn't even debating him at first. He was following Stephen Douglas around on the campaign trail and heckling him from the audience. And eventually this sort of mounted into what became debates.
1: Right, right. They had like a three-hour debate over uh, the, the slavery, right? Right. And uh, the weird thing is, uh, as I understand, uh, Lincoln didn't debate two years later he lost that seat to Douglas mm-hmm. um, he didn't debate two years later at all when he was running for president in 1860 which he won obviously so I guess presidential debates had that first you know beginning that flash on stage but didn't really catch on until what like the 30s or 40s right yeah back in
0: 1934 I think is when they sort of came into the limelight again and people like the idea of presidential debates because it was it was a new Concept. You know, people knew a lot about the candidates, but the idea of hearing them square off against each other, there's something really revelatory about hearing someone respond to what a colleague is saying or a political foe or ally. You know, it really brings out your true thoughts and your true feelings on a topic when you're having to speak off the cuff to what someone is saying or what someone is asking you. And, and that was the great thing about debates is that people got to see the real truth behind what the candidate said. It wasn't just a rehearsed speech.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty much a public service. I mean, if you think about it, everything else you know about a candidate is coming out of that candidate's mouth. It's rehearsed, or it's a press release.
0: Yeah, there's a big PR machine behind Canada.
1: Sure, and and at, the, at that moment when they're debating their, their rival or being asked a follow-up question or something, they're having to think on their feet. And you, you can really see, you know, is this person actually smart? Do they really know what they're talking about? It's uh, it's kind of necessary. But the thing is, is as far as I understand, um, that kind of spontaneity is not found in presidential debates anymore. Uh, apparently, there's this uh, group called the Commission on Presidential Debates, and they control um, you know, not the not the ones in the primary or anything like that, but the the three main presidential and vice presidential debates held right before the elections. Um, they control those with an iron fist. Do you know about the CPD?
0: Yeah, and you're right, Iron Fist is the right term for it. Everything from the height of the podium to the temperature of the room to which cities even get considered to be sites for these debates. And it's a pretty big deal to be the site of a presidential debate. I think there's like a 7000 dollar application fee. You have to have enough hotel rooms available for a certain thousand number of guests. It's like
1: 3,000 hotel rooms.
0: Yeah, so... You have to really petition, essentially, to become a site for one of these, and it is a great honor, but, I mean, the town, you know, is just the backdrop to what goes on, and what goes on is essentially a a very well-oiled PR presentation, least some people would argue.
1: Well, it's all very staged, and what's more, um, originally... Uh, well, let me back up. There's this thing called the uh, Communications Act of 1934. You've heard of this? Mm-hmm. There's this thing called the Equal Time Provision, uh, which is a clause in this law that says that any candidate running for, um, you know, the presidency or uh, uh, something like that uh, has to have equal time in the media. And this actually came up, do you remember, when uh, Fred Thompson was running in the 08 primaries? Everybody was a little worried that he may get more exposure um through law and order reruns and they were talking about having to to not run ones that featured him while he was on the campaign trail he dropped out before it got resolved but that was because of the equal time provision and that used to govern all of the debates um <laughs> until uh, i think 1974 or something like that uh the fcc the federal communications commission came out and said uh okay we're going to we're going to make a loophole here uh, we're going to call uh, presidential debates uh, bona fide news events. As long as they're hosted by a third party, uh, the equal time provision doesn't doesn't hold water any longer, for just for debates. Do you know about that?
0: Yeah, and, and Nixon, I think, was pretty active in, in vetoing the equal time provision, too. Yeah. I, I think he had pretty sour feelings about his televised debate days. Um, he actually did make it to the White House in the end. Not, yeah, not during the Kennedy debates.
1: <laughs> if, if he, uh, well, not just Nixon, Johnson, uh, Jimmy Carter, the, the, these politicians used to um, keep debates from going on because of the equal time provision. Yeah, if they, just they said show no, up. then they just couldn't hold the debate because the other candidates would get more exposure.
0: Right, and in their eyes, you know, saying no to a debate, yeah, you came across looking sort of badly, but. Having, I guess, a bad rap was better than going on TV and looking like a fool.
1: Or allowing your opponent to look really good.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So so this was kind of manipulated, and then the FCC came out and created this loophole so politicians couldn't cripple debates or keep debates from going on without them any longer. Um, And that third-party caveat that they introduced was actually filled by the League of Women Voters.
0: And these women were serious and... You know, women fought really hard for suffrage. A lot of lives were lost. A lot of people went to prison. And they were dead set and determined that they were going to turn around this sort of chaotic scene that had become the presidential debate. Mm-hmm. And talk about ruling something with an iron fist. They were even more stringent than the CPD is today.
1: No, oh, definitely. They, um, they, con- they controlled the format, the questions. They chose the moderator. Uh, I believe they chose the site. But the thing is, with the League of Women Voters... Fairness was paramount to them, and they actually carried it out really well. They were very fair. Um, Anybody who was a viable presidential candidate was was invited. Uh, if you didn't want to show up, they still held the debate. Jimmy Carter found that out the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Ronald Reagan, who was then governor of California, shows up and just blows the uh, television audience away and gets carried into the White House. I mean, that wasn't the only factor, but that was a, a big one. So the league um, just kind of said, you know what? This is about the political process. It's not about the parties. Uh, if you guys want to join in, bring your best... You know, and if, if not, then the other guys are going to bring their best and we'll go on without you. And that actually kind of irked the, um, I think kind of irked maybe an understatement, but the, the Democratic and Republican parties eventually took control of it, debates because they become so powerful.
0: Right, they drafted a memorandum of understanding between them. This is when Dukakis and George H.W. Bush were running for office and between the two parties they decided we can take power back and we can run debates our way and we can make it so the debates are just between the two parties it just comes down to the Democrats and Republicans and essentially what they were clamoring for was a a press conference, really, yeah. where candidates could have questions ahead of time to rehearse, and they knew exactly what was going to be asked of them. They knew what format would be used, and essentially they overtook the LWV and they were not happy. They actually called it a, a fraud on the American voter yeah, when this they, all went down.
1: They stepped back and said, you know, we're not going to have any part of this, and I guess the uh, Democrats and Republicans were all too happy. That's when the uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates was created, because they needed that third party. Still, to keep debates right. bona fide news, news events, but since they were controlling the CPD, they also controlled who showed up. Like uh, in 1992, Ross Perot. Remember Ross Perot? Mm-hmm. He uh, he he had a great showing at a presidential debate. So much so that uh, in 1996. The, the, uh, Democrats and Republicans didn't let him come on to the presidential debates. He was excluded.
0: And later he tried to sue, but he ended up losing that case.
1: Because the equal time provision loophole was there. He, he yes. really had no basis in, in the case. But he still, he, he wasn't allowed to debate in these supposedly fair and open debates because The CPD said no because the Democrats and Republicans told it not to. And that's the other thing about the CPD that that kind of makes it so nefarious. It acts as a a shield, a publicity shield, Mm -hmm. between the American voter and the two parties.
0: I I think that when Ross Perot was not allowed to participate, people were actually polled to see who they blame for that. And only a very small number blamed Bush, a very small number blamed Clinton. Most of them blamed the CPD.
1: Yeah, something like 50% or something like that. Yeah. So, basically, you've got this entity created by the two parties to enforce the two-party system, and this is what we're seeing today uh, at presidential debates. I mean, like, the follow-up question format completely thrown out um the questions are prepared for ahead of time it's like you said well oiled well rehearsed i think in uh, 2000 john kerry who was just a senator back then um complained that uh they that the questions that were asked were a little um below par i think he said you could have grabbed 10 people off the street who don't know the difference between jerusalem and georgia and they would have asked better questions so i mean you know these are not th- i guess the point is is public or er, er, presidential debates are no longer a public service. It's just like one big televised, expensive press release.
0: But people demand it. You know, they still want to see the debates. People still like to watch them and see what's going on. And, you know, you could read a newspaper summary the next day and probably glean the same information. But there's something still to be found in a candidate's facial expressions or the way that the audience responding to the candidate. And another issue with presidential debates that's come up is the polls that are taken afterward. How mm-hmm. accurate are these polls that say, oh, I think so-and-so won... The debate, So-and-so is going to win the election. You know, they're not always accurate. And now, in our modern era, when a lot of these are conducted by computer, for instance, you have a younger segment of the population casting votes in these polls. Sure. And so you're not having the older segments of the population represented. So there's a grave disparity there.
1: Especially in SNAP polls. You know, those uh, very quick, immediate um, online polls where, it, you know, the, the people who are going to fill them out are a little more web-savvy than, than the people who aren't so yeah and the other problem is, is that these polls are so widely broadcast they actually influence um voter uh, impressions of things you know yeah. like who 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 won the the presidential debate i i couldn't really say i thought it was a tie but this poll says that this candidate won so i guess that candidate won mm-hmm. so i mean what's what's the point of polls anyway
0: that's a good question but you know it's funny we talked about how the web is influencing certain aspects of polls. It's also influencing aspects of the debates themselves. Yeah. And back in the 1960s, the big thing was TV, mm-hmm. and now the big thing is internet, essentially, and all this other media. Um, things like Twitter, YouTube, even MTV—they've all played M- part in the 2008. Yeah. They held debates.
1: something with MySpace.
0: Yeah, I think people could post questions and then they were answered. Is that right? Yeah,
1: it was real-time questions via instant message or email. Um, and the uh, moderator chose the best ones and asked one candidate at a time. It was a pretty cool format. I think I read in Wired that as far as the tech community is concerned, the MTV MySpace um, town hall meetings, they weren't actually debates since there was just one candidate there, uh, won the new technology uh, award, I guess, for the presidential debate so far.
0: The one that fascinated me was the one via Twitter, because in Twitter you can only use, I think, 140 characters mm-hmm. for a response, and so that really, really slims down what's usually a, a big oratorical, just cloud of of words and insinuations. The candidates had to give very direct responses to these questions.
1: So who knew Richard Nixon's knee had anything to do with Twitter? You know who knew? Candace. Oh, gosh. Thanks, Candace.
0: You're so welcome. And something else fun that I know, one of my very favorite lines from a presidential debate ever. In 1988, Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson. Oh, yeah. Dan Quayle compared himself to John Kennedy. This is what Lloyd Benson said. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Ouch. That's sort the end of the debate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that killed Quayle
0: certainly did. It shot the duck. Oh, there's a whole lot more to know about presidential debates, and you can find out in how presidential debates work on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.